0: Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to November's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. Coming up, we've got an interview with David Archer, chief executive of AIM-listed Savannah Resources, which is looking to develop a hard rock lithium mine in Portugal. But first of all, I'd like to introduce my partner in crime, Cormac Alera, MD of Electrios Energy, for a chat about what's been going down in the world of batteries this month. Cormac, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Pleasure to be back. So, as we just said, slightly quiet month, but quite a lot going on. So um, yeah. do you want to kick off with, uh, with what's been going on in China?
1: Kind of a little bit quiet in China too. Not as many uh, gigafactory announcements, not as many chemical plants uh, announcements, although there has been, of course, but not as many as in previous months because uh, everyone's a little preoccupied with all-time high prices we're seeing for the uh, lim- lithium chemicals, especially domestically in China. So as people scratching their heads, uh, what do we do first? Build up capacity? Do we pay the prices? You know, the, some buyers are not willing to pay these prices. Waiting, yeah. uh, they're thinking carbonate is going to come back down again. Probably less than 200,000, I guess. I think was the all-time high this month. It was 202,000 RMB or something like that. Scary numbers.
0: I guess the real question, really, and I'm, I'm not sure if it's an answerable question, but what percentage of the market is the spot market? Because obviously, we've got quite a lot of material which is on long-term and annual contracts. And what percentage of, you know, cell makers are actually genuinely exposed to the spot market? Because my my gut feeling is at least the tier one cell makers and and possibly the tier two cell makers
1: are in, in the contract market. Well, I think we got the answer during the week. During the month, when a number of Chinese battery manufacturers announced the price increases, Due to the volatility, are not volatility, but the uh, The triple-digit percentage increases over the year. Uh, So there's been at least four or five companies I know of who've announced the uh, battery increase, and one company that hasn't announced uh, battery prices. So maybe that company is not subject to the spot market, and they're the uh, largest uh, Chinese battery maker, CATL, uh, are going against the grain and not increasing prices. Okay, and and BYD I I saw did announce battery price
0: increases. What's really interesting about that is the how long it's taken the battery makers to break ranks and increase prices. I mean, spot lithium prices started to move in the fourth quarter of last year and moved, you know, an awful lot over the last sort of six, eight, nine months. It's only now that we're actually seeing the prices having passed through the supply chain. And I think that's very interesting because that sort of attests to how long the supply chain actually is in terms of how long
1: it takes everything to pass through from the raw material end up to the cell producer end. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying. So you're saying like nine months almost for the full inventory to pass through. And then we're looking to fully restock and interestingly
0: we saw a similar thing last year with the actually the other way around in the supply chain with the demand from evs so you know we we saw the demand for evs pick up what the back end of 2019 that was when things really started to to move and yeah. it then took 9 months before we actually started to see the lithium prices start to pick up so that sort of seems to to back up the facts that the, the, the it takes sort of nine to 10 months for all of this to pass all the way through the supply chain, which yeah. I think is going to be very important going forward
1: when we get points of inflection in the industry. The battery demand has been doubling in, in, in China uh, every year. It was like uh, 30 gigawatts in 2016, 80 in 2020, and we're expecting over 150 gigawatts this year. And uh, as you're saying, the, the supply chain hasn't grown that significant as the demand and, and production. So um, the squeeze is uh, being felt now. So yeah. we're doubling every, every year or so or 18 months production in, in China. Uh, What's rather
0: worrying is we're certainly not doubling raw materials capacity every year, but I won't get onto my high horse, but uh, it, it, it's certainly an, an issue. And I think we obviously seen... The expansion plans of the Latin American brine producers, which are quite substantial. We haven't really seen a reaction out of the hard rock projects no. in Western Australia up until now, when we've finally heard that the Wajina um, hard rock project is going to be restarted, but it's going to be restarted a lot slower than expected. And in fact, I've actually had to take down my supply forecast because of the Relative slowness of, of, of that restart. So, my supply forecast is actually even lower now than it was a couple of months ago when we're expecting uh, a lot of these projects to, to come on fast. And in fact, Albemarle's come out on its results uh, this week and um, said that the um, train two of their hydroxide converter in Western Australia is, is uh, further delayed. So, I think, you know, the raw materials end. We're talking about quite a, a very creaky supply chain, even as we see ratcheting investment in battery factories and EV factories. And I, uh, a number of cell side houses are saying that uh, lithium prices are going to come down next year. And I don't see any evidence of that.
1: It's just wishful thinking. In China, the sentiment is raw material prices aren't coming down at least till the end of 2022. That's you know, fingers crossed, really. What is the uh, the timeline for a greenfield project, either brine or hard rock? Or let's take brine for example. When's the last, what's the last greenfield project to be set in motion and is producing battery quality grade and significant quality uh, quantities? Like, so, uh, okay. so
0: there there are a couple of greenfield projects under development in Argentina at the moment. But the last greenfield brine project was Orocobre's Olaroth project, which took probably the best part of two years to build and probably two years once it was built to ratchet up to capacity. And and, I mean it's had it's had issues really with the length of the project in terms of hitting its design capacity and and more importantly hitting its design specification in terms of battery grade material. And even, you know, at the most recent quarterly results, they're producing less than 60% battery grade material. I think that does really highlight the issue. There's a lot of capacity coming in in Latin yeah. America in lithium, but how much yeah. of it is battery-grade lithium? That's a core cool thing. And, and then yeah. on the hard rock side, we've obviously had <laughs> Pilgangora projects, and and the Bald Bald Hill projects were were obviously greenfield developments. Unfortunately, you know, Bald Hill went bust during the the down cycle, and Altura's P- Pilgangora project went went bust, and really only Pilbara Minerals was able to to keep its head afloat and you know again you're talking about once funding is received an 18 month to two year build period and then probably a six month workup in terms of getting the plant to produce material to spec so you're talking two and a half years once funding is received I mean and you know if you're talking about a hard rock project going from exploration studies into production
1: you're talking a minimum really five years is that to twenty tons a year, five years? Uh, twenty, let's say the twenty twenty five thousand ton. I think most of these projects used to be based around that number. I think it's slightly increased now. To uh,
0: yeah, I mean, I uh, think people are looking at bigger projects because yeah. obviously the industry can can absorb it. So I think the average size of projects is is increasing, and we're seeing a lot of a lot of companies rework their feasibility studies now to to look at bigger projects. I mean, we've seen yeah. AVZ do that. We've seen Some of the European companies like Cinevec do that, seeing Infinity doing that, and we're seeing some of the the North American projects as well looking to update their numbers to to get bigger projects. So it doesn't actually take a lot longer in terms of development to to build a bigger
1: project, but obviously you're upscaling all of the machinery and, and there's a capital cost impact. And there's a limit too, right, on the machinery side. They're usually built for uh, specific uh, process, specific tonnage, right? I think it's relatively hard to uh, increase the amount of ton uh, tonnage you can run through, the, especially uh, you know not off-the-shelf machineries, but that are machines But general. Let's say, in the case of hard rock processing, for example, to get the concentrate, uh, there might be a limit on that. Well, you and, just modularize
0: it, so you, you yeah the, modular, you just yeah, add the on another module yeah, yeah
1: if you if you need to increase
0: capacity, but Obviously, you know, with with some ore bodies, they're not big enough to justify having higher processing power because as a miner, you don't want to get through your ore body in five or six years. You want it to last 10 or 12 years. So some ore bodies are not suitable for for upscaling, but uh, a a lot of ore bodies are. And I guess we're going to see that sort of uh, going through. What else has been going on in China? Is the... um, Wuling mini EV still um, cleaning up in the
1: EV sales. Are you trying to say it's like the size of a vacuum cleaner? Or?
0: <laughs> I wasn't actually but, but it is a good analogy.
1: <laughs> EV sales in China, September has been a, a bumper month. I think it's so. uh, almost EV sales accounted for almost 20% of total EV are vehicle sales that month. So uh, it was almost 600,000 units. Oh. So very impressive. Uh, previous months have been hovering around 300,000. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry. that was about 300,000 units. Uh, previous months, June, July, was about 225, 250,000 units. So it's been a bit of a pickup in the back end of the year. And uh, it's really uh, driving up uh, China's forecasts as to where they'll be in 2025, 20, 2030. They're thinking they're going to be sales up to 6 million units by 2025 now, and wow. uh, okay. uh, 30 million by uh, 3035.
0: That is in line with seasonality, isn't it? I mean, Chinese sales are. Are always
1: stronger in the fourth quarter. Yeah, and this is uh, for once uh, the thought uh, on the market it's not driven by policies, but this is actually uh, you know market demand, uh, market driven. So that's what we wanted to see a few years ago: was this could this market stand on its own without the government's policies propping it up? As we all know, the policies have been re- removed uh, and, and reduced year by year, and uh, we see sales still going up. So uh, pretty good sign in China i think that's great and i think one of the big drivers of that of ev standing alone
0: is the wuling um, mini ev because i mean it's it's by far the biggest ev seller in in china at the moment it's got something like a 15% market share on the year to date basis does that sound about right i mean it's absolutely uh, wiping the floor with the yeah. tesla models and the other models and i think that has actually sent quite an important signal around the world about what EV consumers are actually looking at, they're not focused on on having the most expensive car with the longest range. They're focused on having the cheapest car that's suitable for what they need in terms of their commute. And I think that's starting to have an impact on the OEMs, because obviously, we've seen this announcement or speculation, I'm not sure there's actually been an announcement, but that Tesla is going to switch to LFP batteries globally, which is a big a big move for Tesla because Tesla's yeah. always been about big batteries and big ranges and big prices. If they do
1: switch it'll be a bigger battery though. So yeah, <laughs> bigger is better. But you know I, this is this market. Where was this big announcement last year for uh, Battery Day? Can you take uh, going to be saying something else next year obviously. Uh can you take this with a pinch of salt? The Battery Day was their 5-year strategy uh, and the LFP they only saw going into robo taxis back then. So. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But I mean, I think that's fascinating. And I, I, Tesla isn't the only automaker that's come out and talked about switching to LFP for, for their mass market models. I mean, Mercedes is out a couple yeah. of weeks ago. And Hyundai, I think, has also come out and said this. So I think this is, this is really important. And obviously, it's a very important also from the materials.
1: Um, you know who so hasn't come out and said it is uh, Toyota. No so Toyota uh, <laughs> haven't come out said they have no interest in LFP at all. Toyota hey, haven't had yeah. a, an awful
0: lot of interest in battery electric vehicles. Either. Well, they, yeah, <laughs> they only
1: just announced a significant investment in, uh, in batteries, actually. Yeah. Uh, so, I, yeah, yeah I mean, for, for me, to Toyota haven't
0: been a big uh, haven't been a big player and in the BEV space, unlikely yeah. to be going forward. But you're,
1: you're right. SK have uh, I think have announced uh, that they also be pursuing or developing their own LFP. Same with LG Cam, but uh, not Panasonic. Again, still hanging on to uh, NMC dreams. Yeah.
0: This is a really, really important development because obviously, when you you talk to, to people about the industry, I talk to a lot of consultants et cetera, and, and you know, for for two or three years, it's always been about range, 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 and now as the industry matures, it's more about price, increasingly about price, and I think a lot of that is to do with the the changes we've seen in battery raw material prices and we're expecting to see in battery raw material prices going forward. But um, I think it's a very, very important development for the industry. Uh, and of course, the move to, to LFP wouldn't be possible without the technological advances, particularly on the anode side, which have made faster charging of LFP viable and higher energy density, etc. So, you know, I think it's, we expect to see more of these these developments over the next two to three years, and and they'll make different battery chemistries um, more competitive. So um, yeah, fingers crossed. I think it's a it's a very interesting um, time for the industry, and that, I guess that really feeds into the issue about pack costs and cell costs. I noticed that BNEF came out this month and cautioned that they feel that cell costs are likely to increase year on year in 2021 and potentially into 2022 and obviously that's quite a big a big change given that everybody always cites the bloomberg chart which has got cell costs continuing to decrease up into the mid 2020s and what does that do for the industry if if cell costs start to increase I should caution here, I'm specifically talking about sell costs. I mean, I think there's still the potential for pack costs to continue to decrease for certainly 2021, maybe into 2022. But I do think that
1: sell costs now will, will increase. What do you recommend? Well, yeah. well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, BUID will be increasing their price of their sell by uh, not less than 20%, not 20%, but not less than 20%. So... Each new order will be negotiated uh, at a price, uh, whatever the materials are that month or week they haven't really said. And that's going forward from November 1st. And so they're 20% increase, great power uh, increasing. Goshen uh, are kind of taking the CATL approach, which is. Expanding up and down in the supply chain, and this is why CATL think they have the advantage here over their competitors, uh, let's say uh, B Y D, because they've been quite aggressive, moving upstream and downstream, securing a uh, stable raw supply of material, and like B Y D, have also been working on the technology end, and uh, which is you know increasing energy density by reducing costs, and you know for the last four years or so, C H uh, L have constantly reduced the uh, price of their batteries, so. In 2018, it was one yuan per watt hour, and it dropped to 0.96 in 2019, and 0.89 in 2020, and 0.79 in uh, 2021. So they've consistently been reducing costs while remaining profitable. So, um, you know, there's something to learn there from uh, how Seattle uh, approached the industry and the supply chain for the last number of years. And Goshen are, are, are doing something quite similar. And uh, now we see Tesla uh, wanting to move the battery business, but but also uh, into the cathode manufacturing, into sourcing lithium, everything. So if you want to be in the battery game these days, you really need to have your tentacles uh, throughout the supply chain to ensure stay low stable prices and supply. Yeah. And I think the thing about packs is very interesting because even though the BYD
0: cell cost is going up, the the pack cost is probably still coming down because of these technological advances in, in, for instance, the blade battery and other types of application like the blade battery. I mean, obviously, if you move to an LFP battery from an NCM battery, you don't need the thermal management systems that you have in a NCM. So your, your pack costs are potentially lower compared to your cell costs. And I think, you know, as the industry changes formats and and changes architectures and everything. There is still the potential for pack costs to continue to decrease as we get efficiencies of scale and different manufacturing methodologies. I mean, I think there's lots of stuff written about EVs, which is being proved to be rubbish, like this thing that uh, EVs use four times as much copper as, as ICEs. Now that EVs are designed from the bottom up, they're effectively using the same amount of copper as ICEs. So you're eliminating huge amounts of costs by applying engineering to, to the EV architectures. And that's going to come through in terms of, of pack costs going forward as well. So, yeah, I'm just to flag that even though cell costs are, are likely to increase going forward, it could be a couple of years before pack costs actually start to increase as well. So it's not all
1: over for the EV story. Some of the greatest steps being taken over the last uh, number of years have been on the pack side. Uh, the engineering side. I think there's still a lot, a lot that can be done on that end and production of batteries as well. The energy required to produce batteries, it's most of the tech that we've been using up until recently has been, you know, the battery production tech uh, technology has been, what's been around for the last 15, 10, 15 years. I think going forward in the next 10 years, we're going to see uh, big changes on battery production side, uh, efficiency, a smaller footprint, less energy, speedier, Safer products coming out. I think a lot's going to change there. And I think we just saw this month in China the uh, the, the latest battery factory to open was the Saic GM Ultimum factory, which is similar to the ultimum that they're going to be opening in in the US. So, be interesting to see what kind of packs come out of there and what the prices are and what the real innovations on the engineering side are uh, for the latest in, in battery production technology.
0: That'll be great. That'll be um, fascinating. I think, and I. We shouldn't write off the engineers because in terms of the advances we've seen just in the last three years in the industry, they've been so huge. And I think there's a potential for, for more of that going forward. And certainly, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I think a lot of the focus in the last three or four years has been on the cathode side of the battery. A lot yeah. of the R&D focus now is on the anode side. There is potential to significantly improve the, the performance of cells. By investing in the anodes, by adding more silicon in the anode, by coating it potentially with, with elements like HPA, by changing voltage to allow faster charging and better use of all of the material in the battery, So, oh, sorry, in the cell. So I think there are significant further advances coming through in the industry, which are going to have a positive impact on the economics of the industry.
1: Yeah, yeah. We've been hammering away the cathode for the last two or three years. We more or less hit the wall with 811. We got 955, and we're going cobalt free. But then, you know, there's a lot. The only thing we're seeing going mass production cobalt free is LFP, really, right now. So um, I think, yeah, the refocus going back to the uh, anode again to squeeze a little bit more out on that side. And we'll be breaking the 300 watt hour per kilogram. Uh, You know, there's a lot of other things happening also. But the cathode side is going to be quiet. You're right. Just
0: check in about. Power shortages in China, because obviously uh, we talked about that last month. We have seen, we're starting to see some quite significant cascade issues around that, particularly sort of in cathode production in actually the rare earth space as well. Uh, What are you hearing about that in terms of
1: of guidance, et cetera? Well, that is being blamed as one of the reasons why uh, raw material prices have been increasing in China as well. Still, the industry is. uh, been subjected to uh, power restrictions and for that reason there's less production and less materials available so it hasn't really been uh, sorted out yet as far as I've heard. Is there any guidance on
0: are we likely to see sort of power rationing or is it so are we going to see potentially rolling in blackouts of industrial plants or... Uh, well, because the, 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 the goes. Chinese government's prioritizing yeah. the consumer, isn't it? It's prioritizing residential and everything over industry.
1: They're slightly ahead on um, where they want to be in terms of CO2 emissions. So they're quite pleased with that, I believe, uh, the government. Um for that reason, they can bring forward some of the uh, other um, timelines for uh, when they will become uh, basically carbon neutral. But um, they also want to prioritize the tech industry too, I believe. A new energy vehicle industry has gone quite well for them. Sales, as we discussed earlier, are, are, are huge. Basically, it will be a problem for the interest industry, and it is a problem, which is the supply chain. It's tough enough not having the materials, but if you get the materials and not having the power to, to process them, is uh, is really going to stagnate the industry. So, but at the moment, yeah, there's still power restrictions in, in certain. It depends where you are in the country, obviously. So, like if you notice, CATL announced a big uh, five billion dollar investment in. Uh, Battery materials site. Yeah, Yeah, apparently it's more than recycling and they're doing everything up there. It's basically uh, right next to the Three Gorges Dam, you know? So no power problems there. (laughs) No, no. No one hopes. hopes. In the city, right next to the Three Gorges. uh, So um, they need the hydroelectricity and they obviously uh, have um, the reduced carbon uh, intensity in their their, uh, production. I think you have some nice points about uh life cycle analysis in uh, your BMR this month as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I won't go into it in a lot no, of detail, either? but yeah. I think uh, you you do need to take sort of um, some life cycle analyses with a with a pinch of salt. Uh, there's more detail in, in the BMR, but I think um, life cycle analyses are not always comparing apples with apples, should we say, and uh, yeah, comparing apples with mooses is um, is not a great way of uh, of running an industry, so uh, yeah, I think I think there is. An important point. And you know, you, you talk about reciting uh, next to the um, Three Gorges Dam for, for clean hydropower. And I think that quite an interesting uh, study of two nickel offtake agreements this month. You had uh, Renault that signed up a, a, an offtake agreement with Terra Farme, which is a um, European producer of nickel that uses bio leaching. So it's, it's very, very clean and uh, uses processing powered by hydroelectric power. And then you've got Tesla signing up a, an agreement with Prony, which is the ex-Goro laterite operation, which used to be owned by Vale, which utilizes um, coal-fired power and, and will not yeah. be looking to, to back out that coal-fired power until sort of uh, 2040, 2050, is really a, a study of, of, of two different, very different approaches. I have to say, a little bit disappointed in Tesla, which obviously cites its green credentials, to have gone with quite a dirty producer of nickel uh, when there's plenty of either operating mines or operations which use cleaner power sources or new development projects, which also would be exposed to cleaner power sources. So a big red cross, I think, for Tesla in terms of
1: uh, sustainability from that deal. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's a strange one. I thought that was a uh, failed operation. Pitching I wouldn't out, say it's right?
0: failed, but it hasn't been as successful as you would have wanted if you dropped ten billion dollars or or however much it's been into it. And uh, you know, it's cost a lot more than it was supposed to cost. It's never really produced to to um, to capacity, and um, you know, it's um, it's had higher operating costs as well. Yeah. It's never really produced to capacity, so uh, yes, I mean, I think Vale were very happy to um to to get rid of it and uh, focus a little bit more on sulfide sulfide nickel rather than laterite.
1: Yeah, I was just wondering uh, when you said that, you know, uh, Tesla sell a lot of carbon credits. Maybe they got enough to just uh, cancel it out. Maybe they do, Maybe. but uh, at the end of the
0: day, I mean, it's still. Still, it's still a dirty happening. project, yeah. It's, you know, yeah. it's 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 paying lip service to being clean if you're using your carbon credits from elsewhere in your organisation to offset against that. When um, you know you could source cleaner material from other from other sources, should we say?
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, well, there's a timeline issue. Maybe uh, you can get it up and running quickly. It's interesting. It looks like uh, that was broken brokered by that Swiss trading house, Trifer, Trifer- Tr- Trafigura. Yeah. Yeah. So um, nice little deal for them. Uh, looks like it's, it's heading to Europe, I guess, right? Oh, no, no. That's what the Chinese operations most like. now I think about it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think that's great for our, for our summary of uh, October's news. So I will say um, thank you very much to Cormac and uh, look forward to talking to you next month.
1: Talk to you next month, Matt. Yeah.
0: Cheers. Cheers. And now onto our interview. I'm delighted today to be joined by David Archer, who's the CEO of AIM-listed Savannah Resources. David's been a guest on the podcast before, right back in February 2019, and obviously quite a bit's happened since then to both Savannah and uh, to the lithium market as a whole. So David, thanks very much for joining us again today. Thanks for the opportunity, Matt. Moving into the questions then. When we spoke way back in 2019, you had a PEA on a roundabout 175,000 tonne per annum project with a resource of just over 20 million tonnes at just over 1% lithium oxide. These days, you've got quite a lot bigger resource. I think you've got potential for byproduct credits as well. And you've got a feasibility study underway. Can you talk to us a little bit about the improvement in the project economics?
2: Well, I think um, you know probably some of the the, the the biggest features, I suppose, really really increase in the run-of-mine mining rate from one point three to one point five million tons per annum. So that sort of clearly has a, a material impact on mining costs uh, per uh, per ton of uh, run-of-mine material. We've increased it from one point three to one point five, so that's uh, very helpful in terms of our overall costs. I think the other the sort of key feature is in the original scoping study, we were assuming transport of the material to China. Uh, we're now looking at a European destination. So that's looked the overall economics. I think the um, other aspect sort of clearly, of course, is the, the top line revenue. Uh, we were originally forecasting at um, I think it was around about 685 US dollars a tonne. Current mean prices Somewhat in a range at the moment, but um, you know certainly north of um, twelve hundred and fifty US dollars a ton. So that's clearly had a, a pretty material impact on um, the overall NPV. I think one of the other sort of key aspects, of course, is that cost inflation has been uh, pretty low in Portugal. It is uh, an act- is a very low cost jurisdiction in the first place, but um, you know we've seen you know, very significant cost inflation. In the sort of the principal region in the world uh, that produces asphodeline uh, concentrate, grading at six percent, and that's that's Western Australia. So, to a certain extent, uh, the industry sort of moved significantly. Uh, I mean, it has become significantly more sort of uh, costly, whereas ours has been um, somewhat stable on the cost side. In terms of the byproduct credits for quartz and feldspar. In terms of our latest modelling, we've been a little bit more conservative in terms of total volumes. We've kept um, the same uh, price for the Quartz and Feldspar, but uh, wound back um, sales volumes a fraction just to be a little bit more conservative. By the same token, we do believe that the the modelled uh, prices for the Quartz and Feldspar will actually be uh, greater than what we're modelling. So net-net, we believe that we've got a a project with uh, a larger NPV, a more robust project, one that I think is sort of holding its own in terms of um, its position on the um, international cost curve and um, you know, maybe moving a little bit to the left.
0: Okay, great. And as you said, I remember when you originally did the scoping study, you modeled costs on the CIF China basis. At that point, the possibility of having SPOD, you mean conversion capacity in Europe didn't exist can you talk a little bit about the potential to supply or concentrate to European converters what options you're looking at uh, and also what that does for the cost structure of the project
2: sure really the uh, the landscape for our project the Barossa lithium project has changed utterly and dramatically over the last 12 months and you know what we are seeing and um, you know we're seeing this before it's sort of more widely sort of publicized is that there are multiple European and um, ex-European groups looking to, to build refineries in, in Europe. And this shouldn't come as any surprise to anyone. Europe you know, will be either the, the biggest overall sort of battery lithium consumer in the world, or potentially the second largest. Um, clearly, China and uh, Europe will be vying for uh, first position. So it has been anomalous uh, that we haven't sort of seen this sort of end-to-end lithium value chain in, in Europe. And I think um, industrial groups do see that anomaly uh, and they're looking to fill that, if you like, uh, industrial void or production void by the uh, sort of planning to introduce uh, conversion plants or refineries um, in Europe. We know of at least seven, possibly eight or nine groups uh, looking at that at the moment. So. We're having some very interesting discussions with potential off-takers and counterparties and um, investors around that. So um, what we will see is um, an end-to-end lithium value chain in Europe in the mid-2020s. Uh,
0: I can't quite remember how much you'd factored in to, for the freight to China, but presumably freighting the material into Europe is going to be substantially cheaper
2: yeah i think we were sort of planning on something like 60 us dollars a ton transport costs from portugal to to china ports and we can sort of clearly eliminate uh, virtually all of that and remembering you know that was 60 us dollars a ton a number of years ago and of course sea freights have moved up sort of quite uh, significantly sort of since then i suppose our wish list if you like uh, if you like is prefaced around. Potential refinery development in Portugal, uh, with our material as the sort of key base load, base load material to feed that uh, feed that refinery. If it were in, say, you know, close to Porto, that means that um, you know, we'd be only 140 kilometres uh, distant uh, from uh, from a refinery, and um, that's a, a vastly smaller distance uh, than um, the distances that SC6 has to travel from. Western Australia through to China and then ultimately into the um, into the European market,
0: for sure. And I guess that sort of feeds slightly into my next question. So, since we last spoke, I would say that ESG has very much come into the spotlight in the battery raw materials space. Are you or have you carried out a, a life cycle analysis, and can you talk a little bit about how your project benchmarks against other hard rock? Projects either in the Atlantic Basin or further afield.
2: Yeah, well, um, we undertook a um, CO2 study of the project for our um, our EIA, and um, at least on sort of scope one emissions, you know, we're probably pretty comparable to other hard rock producers. You know, the methodologies, the mining methodologies, and the mining equipment is um, is pretty much uh, pretty much the same. When you get into sort of the scope two area, though a positive margin uh, starts appearing for us. Around about 60% of grid power in Portugal comes from renewable resources. And, you know, our objective is really to have 100% renewables uh, sort of feeding the plant uh, when we go into production. So, you know, we hope we'll be able to sort of significantly reduce our scope two emissions. On the scope three side, course you know there will be that sort of transport cost oh, sorry uh, that, that co2 footprint uh through to the coast but that's going to be sort of vastly less than the you know, co2 footprint of the uh, involving um the australian uh, australian producers and of course you know the, the the real green sky for our project will be eliminating both um both the scope uh, scope one and the scope three emissions by way of the introduction of non-diesel, non-petrol powered mobile equipment and um, and transporter equipment. And we're doing quite a bit of work on that at the moment to see uh, if we can sort of eliminate uh, those two CO-producing elements to the project in the medium term. And um, I think we would be in a position to not only achieve net zero, but um, hopefully we might be able to achieve net minus emissions associated with this project.
0: Okay, okay. That's great. Now, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about some of the changes to Portugal's mining laws. What major impacts or what primary impacts are are those changes going to have on the project's development plan?
2: Essentially nil. The good news is that we have a granted mining lease, a 30-year mining lease that runs through to 2036. That mining lease is sort of grandfathered around the sort of former uh, former mining legislation. So in a sense, the, uh, some of the requirements of the new mining legislation don't really apply to us. For example, under the uh, new mining legislation, it will be necessary to uh, sort of get the approval of the municipalities to exploration, which is um, you know, certainly unusual, I think, in the, sort of the, global, the global industry sort of context. And um, you know, that will be challenging one way or another, and um, it's going to make it, um, you know, somewhat more sort of difficult to get um, overall approvals, you know, nearly to, to, to explore. And as, as you know, and um, probably everyone listening to this knows, um, exploration is uh, generally a, a very light touch effort and um, unfortunately uh, not necessarily successful either. So um, not only is light touch, but um, it, it certainly won't result in, in discoveries and mind um, developments.
0: Okay. And um, in terms of, I mean, you you talked about um, uh, registering your EIA. Has that been approved?
2: We're in the latter stages of what hopefully will be an approval. And uh, we're hopeful that um, we'll see an answer between now and the, um, and the end of the year. It's been a very long process, started off in uh, 2018, Uh, We lodged our EIA uh, at the end of May of last year, gone through a very rigorous evaluation process, um, a public consultation process, both with local stakeholders and uh, a transnational consultation process with uh, the government of Galicia across the border in Spain as well, so um, this is a um, this has been a project that's been you know very much evaluated, um, very much sort of prodded by all involved, and um, you know nevertheless you know we believe that um, it stood up and um, demonstrated to be itself to be um, a development very worthy of approval. We hope.
0: I think it's fair to say that um, you're obviously one of only a very, very few European lithium projects currently. What sort of interest are you seeing from potential project partners at the current time?
2: Really a great deal of interest. And I think I think that really the, 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 the most um, important thing to remember is that really all of these refinery developments that I've been talking about, seven or eight or nine of them, are all prefaced around receiving and treating spodumene, hard rock spodumene concentrate, all of them. They're not talking about taking Zinwaldite, they're not taking, not talking about taking um Yaderite. Yeah, you know, will be the most internationally sort of traded uh, lithium mineral. And all of these refineries are prefaced around spodumene. But what that means to us is that you know, we've got the largest spodumene resource in, in Europe. And ours is, you know, will really be a key feedstock source because. Will enjoy a, a lower CO two footprint uh, in comparison to our non-European peers. You know, we'll have the provenance of being produced in um, in Europe in accordance with uh, you know the very rigorous European and Portuguese environmental and labour law regulations. And of course, you know the the gov- overall sort of governance of um, uh, Portugal and Europe is sort of first class, and really distinguishes us from ex-European sources of spodumene. So. It's like being on the dance floor and there are a lot of guys out there looking for a dance partner and um, we're the only one available.
0: And, um, you know, obviously, um, we're not going to get you to name names, but are you seeing interest from all levels of the industry? I mean, are you seeing sort of cell makers? Are you seeing OEMs talking about securing tonnages or potentially investing directly into the project? What sort of level of interest from the different levels of the supply chain are you having?
2: I think sort of the the, the principal industrial areas are, are really uh, for those people already involved in the in the supply chain. Certainly, cell manufacturers, um, existing ex-European producers of hydroxide, they're certainly sort of present. Other groups who um, don't have any existing direct relationship with the, uh, the lithium supply chain. Couple of oil companies, for example, we're seeing sort of m- very modest and very tentative and very cautious interest from OEMs, who I think sort of recognise that Houston, we have a problem called high prices, and uh, they don't really quite know how to deal with that. So um, yeah, a very sort of wide, wide range of um, sort of potential sort of counter, uh, potential counterparties, both national European. Ex European, Asian, and North North American. The only only group um, that's not represented, interestingly enough, are um, Australian groups.
0: (laughs) Okay, okay. It's fair to say that many commentators, myself included, have been pretty disappointed at the disconnect between government support for investment in the downstream battery industry in Europe and the upstream. Do you see this improving anytime soon? This disconnect.
2: I think it's a great point and um, and very uh, very relevant. I think uh, governments will actually be sort of forced into making decisions to sort of support the development of the um, upstream part of the uh, the lithium value chain. You know, I think the uh, logistics problems that we've sort of seen over the last year or so um, just really uh, makes. More compelling uh, argument for onshoring of these activities. I think that the somewhat sort of rickety uh, geopolitical situation that we sort of see at the moment also means uh, that um, resiliency, uh, resilience uh, for Europe is becoming even more important. And really, um, as we're sort of seeing the lead up to COP26, climate change is presenting itself front and centre by a country mile as the biggest imperative uh, for governments to deal with. And, um, of course, lithium, lithium lithium-ion batteries, um, mines like our own, are absolutely sort of vital in ensuring that uh, European transport reduces its uh, current um, contribution of 20% of Europe's um, global emissions to uh, zero with the introduction of electric mobility.
0: Okay, great. And coming back to Savannah now, what do you see as the primary catalysts for the company over the next six to twelve months or so?
2: I think sort of cleaning up our sort of portfolio. You know, we've publicly said that we're sort of looking to concentrate on lithium. Uh, we'll be sort of looking at some initiatives around um, our Mozambique mineral sands project. And um, clearly, off-take and investment um, are also, you know, will be sort of very key. I think uh, off-take and investment will really sort of underscore uh, the. Significant strategic value and um, investment appeal of the Barroso Lithium project. The EIA, the award of the EIA, I think, will be uh, very sort of transformational as well, and 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 certainly that has been a sort of significant impediment, if you like, to our sort of capital growth, and of course the delivery of um, the DFS uh, for the development of the project uh, in the latter part of 2022. So, you know, plenty of action. There will be some sort of secondary elements as well that we're working on at the moment. You know, one of the things we're you know, particularly focused in on is the, um, the the CO2 footprint of the project, and we're looking at launching a few initiatives around that. So plenty of news.
0: Okay, that's great. And I guess, you know, if you have a, a chance to sort of talk directly to investors, and, you know, what, what is the primary thing that you think that the market is, is just not getting about the company at the moment?
2: I think think we've probably been too conservative. We've played it with a very straight bat. This is a conventional project using conventional metallurgy. And I think what we will prove is that we can develop and um, demonstrably uh, and successfully develop what will be, um, I think, a model for mine developments in in Europe. I think there's probably been some scepticism in truth, and probably um, well-deserved skeptic- skepticism around the real potential for the development of um, a serious mine in Europe.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, David Archer, CEO of Savannah Resources. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, Matt. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for November. You can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.